We are back. You know, we live in a sea of misinformation and disinformation. And on this program, we make a real effort to try and give you the facts. And we try and get things right. And that's, that ain't so easy sometimes. Now, there's some agencies on the web that devote uh, their time and energy to clearing up uh, mysteries and, and allegations and, and, and internet rumors, etc. People like Snopes.com, who we've referred to in the past. We applaud their efforts and at this juncture want to uh, see what we can do to clear up an aviation mystery. Now, if you're listening near an internet connection, uh, you might do well to go to storm2k.org while we conduct the following conversation and take a look at the pictures. What you will see is a Boeing 727 in an extraordinary state of being beat up. The plane encountered a hailstorm over Alberta, Canada, and uh, was thoroughly pounded. So pounded, in fact, that some have questioned the authenticity of the photographs on the web. It just so happens that Radio Parallax's aviation correspondent was a crew member on that flight. And rejoining us to talk about that particular uh, mission over Canada and the subsequent, I guess you'd say, controversy over it is Vladimir Zaravika. Welcome back, Vlado. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be back. Well, uh, Vlada, you uh, you live to tell the tale of, of, of this remarkable story, and I think you need to share it with our listeners. What the hell happened in Canada last August? Last August, it was a regular revenue flight. Let me clarify. August 06. August of 06, correct. Okay. Uh, just a month or so ago from the time that we're taping now uh, was the one-year anniversary, and I'll tell you about that later in the follow-up Okay. The story. It was a routine flight. Uh, we had been taking off from uh, uh, the city in Canada there on a regular flight that we had been doing the past a week, week and a half. And on this particular time, uh, the weather in August in uh, over the Canadian plains uh, was a bit rough. After um, a few minutes of flight and uh, up to approaching about thirty thousand feet as we were still climbing. We got hit by the mother of all hailstorms <laughs> that came out of nowhere. I think in California, we're used to having no weather, unless maybe perhaps in the Sierra foothills. So people sort of forget that in other parts of the country, uh, you know, nasty storms are quite normal in the summer. Yes, uh, yes, they are. And what was particularly strange about uh, this particular uh, hailstorm was that we had no warning of it. We had been following another cargo aircraft that had taken off three minutes ahead of us from the Canadian airport. They had taken off. We were cleared into position and hold. As soon as they took off and started their turn, we were cleared for takeoff. The tower asked that aircraft what direction that they would like to fly because of the uh, thunderstorms that were in the area. Mm -hmm. And then uh, subsequently, three minutes later, they asked us and I, as the co-pilot, and that particular leg was working the radio, and I said the same exact direction. So you're just following them? We were three to five minutes, which translated once we got up into our speeds, could be anywhere from two to three, four miles behind them. Okay. And they were going to the same city. They like Every afternoon, they, they went to the same city. We went to the same city. Depends who gets there first is who can load up the airplane first and get out to the runway. The last radio call I made before the biggest part of the hailstorm hit was to air traffic control, and I asked them if they see anything on their radar system because I don't see anything on ours. I was working the radar. The captain was flying the airplane, and the control uh, uh, air traffic control center said, no, it looks like the worst of the stuff is behind us. And then it hit. 
We were already in turbulence. There was already a, a loud hailstorm. Then the hail hit hard. So you're probably used to getting the occasional buffeting by hail in a cargo aircraft. Uh, yeah, um, this was this was more and more intense. Um, if any of so I mean your... you start out that way though. I mean that's right, a little right. bit of hail, and then and then it kept getting louder. I'm well, guessing. Well, f- at first it was turbulence. We entered the clouds at about I would estimate about ten thousand feet. Okay. And when by the time we reached the thirty thousand feet, which was anywhere between eight to ten minutes later, it was slowly intensifying. The turbulence was intensifying, and the hail was intensifying. But a few seconds before the worst of it hit, it was so loud that the three of us who sit about two feet apart from each other in the cockpit could not communicate unless we leaned over and literally screamed in each other's ears. If any of your listeners have ever been in a small hailstorm in their car, well, multiply that noise by 157 feet of fuselage, <laughs> 100 feet plus of wingspan at 300 miles an hour. That's how loud it was. And, but that still wasn't the worst of it. At this point, some people probably have pulled this up on the website. I'm looking at the picture in front of me right now, and it does show the, um, I guess you'd call it the nose cone, the front of the 727. It looks as though you could stand up and stick your arm into it, probably up to at least your elbow and probably to your shoulder before you hit uh, the interior of the the plane. The the nose cone um, on the 727 houses uh, the radar uh, unit, and and on the picture, I'm not sure if you can actually see part of the radar dish. So most of that is hollow, because it allows the radar dish to sweep back and forth. But the size of that hole, by the way, that was a freshly painted aircraft. If you look at the pictures of, of the paint being peeled off of it, that aircraft had been painted within the, the, the month or two before that hit. The size of the hole that had been beaten through the fiberglass portion uh-huh. of the nose cone uh-huh. was a good three, three and a half feet diameter. So, like, not just one basketball, you could probably drop two or three basketballs right through the hole. Oh, yeah. The mechanics <laughs> climbed through it to, to, to take a look. And I should note, I'm looking at your, your engine, and it looks so somebody took a... It appears as though someone took a ball-peen hammer and went around the rim and just left these, like, ball indentations along the the entire rim. There probably wasn't a square inch of of the uh, engine nacelle, leading edge of the engine nacelle, on the number one and the number three engines, the pod engines on the side, uh, that weren't uh, uh, beat up. Likewise, uh, that happened on the leading edge of the wings, if you see on some of the other photos. Yeah, it looks like the uh, the lights on the side, the, the cover on that is just completely smashed. And, and of course, and your windshield. Let's talk about your windshield. Yeah, that was, that was the absolute uh, most frightening part. The point that the hailstorm hit the hardest, seconds before the windshield started cracking, I, who sit on the right side of the aircraft in the cockpit behind that window was leaning forward <laughs> towards my left, working the weather radar. And the re- weather radar is similar to, to how you see on the evening news on the weather report. You've got the Doppler radar where it paints green for light showers, yellow for more intense showers, and red for thunderstorms. I was working the radar, bent over, dialing the knobs, uh, and it was only yellow and green. We were showing no red thunderstorm cells that should produce such hailstorms and such. And... Remember, the air traffic controller had just told us that the worst of it was behind us, and we knew that this other aircraft, who hadn't made any diversions, was three to five minutes ahead of us. And they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. And then it hit us. And it was already so loud at that point, because 
we were in some hail already. The engineer, Mikey, who sat behind me, a good friend of mine, started pounding me on the shoulder. I looked over my left shoulder, and he was pointing up towards my windshield. I looked up at the windshield <laughs> as it was starting to crack. Oh, boy. At that point, time stopped for me. It's, it's one of those things where the way I remember it, and I guess how the human brain works under extreme amounts of stress, I was in slow motion. Yeah. To me, it felt like for four years I was sitting there watching each little crack on the windshield spread out. Well, I'm looking at the photo now, and, it, and this is the seat you were in, and it looks as though it looks as though 85% of the windshield is just cracks. Well, correct. And as you were watching, those were like spreading before your very eyes. Yes, yes. Because wow. I was sitting there, and and I'll, I'll confess, I sat there like a deer. <laughs> and the, with the deer stun in the headlights thing. Well, I guess you're expecting at any moment, perhaps you're about to get hit by a 500-mile gust of wind. In in my official report to the company on the incident, I at that point I said, and I just sat there waiting to die. I was expecting a, a, a three-foot-wide by two-foot-tall dual-paned glass of high-tempered <sighs> glass to come from, that's about two and a half feet away from me, to come smashing into my face followed by tons of ice all at about 300 miles an hour wow so you're standing there <laughs> yeah yeah you don't I'm, even know how long I i'm guess. sitting there well later i asked mikey the engineer how long i sat there stunned yeah. and he said as long as it took me to reach over grab my oxygen masks put it on and we're, we're trained to do that with one hand in less than five seconds then he said i looked over at you saw that you were still sitting there slapped you in the back of the head and screamed, put on your mask. And at that point, just like in the movies, uh, as you see the old war movies where the, uh, the fresh recruit is first time in combat and he freezes up and when the sergeant comes along and starts screaming at him and hits him in the back of the head, he snaps into action. At that point, I did the same thing. I reacted to within the level of my training, put on my oxygen mask. It was too loud to communicate with hand signals I, uh, uh, the captain and I communicated that he was turning around and descending and getting back, uh, turning back towards Calgary. I got on the radio at that point. Well, I reprogrammed the GPS for him so he, he would know the direction back to Calgary. Cause and the we GPS were, was functioning. The GPS was functional. And at that point, after I donned the oxygen mask, reprogrammed the GPS for the captain, he started the turn. I got on the radio and for the first time in my entire, at that point, 16-year career, made a mayday call. Okay. Later, the captain, uh, when we were on the ground safely, the captain uh, wanted uh, uh, me... The captain asked me if I knew that there was a difference between a mayday call and an emergency call. Many times you declare an emergency uh, uh, on the radio. Mayday me pretty much means the airplane's going down. Oh. And that I... That was probably a fair guess on your point, though, that it might be. Exactly. I just kind of <laughs> looked at hairs, the, I'd say. I looked at the captain, and this was right after we had landed, and I sat there, and I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> then he looked back at me, looked at the damage, and he goes, you might not have been wrong from... <laughs> <laughs> my god at at that point we we turned around um you did started, a 180 i mean we're trained i know here at university airport and other places they right. teach people to, to see where you're heading and then go 180 and go the exact opposite to get out of it exactly is that what you did that's exactly what we did okay. the captain turned to the left away from where the most of the damage was coming from okay. where the hail was coming from turned made a descending turn to the left i had made the the mayday call and we were cleared to go directly back to the uh, uh to the airport i had reprogrammed the gps we were were in such shaking uh 
turbulence that it was difficult to, to read the gauges. So we were not quite sure when to stop the turn. And I had tried to communicate once we thought where we were going and, mm -hmm. the, and all of the gauges settled down, or at least our eyeballs settled down from all of the shaking. Uh, I tried to communicate with uh, air traffic control again they would verify they that, help you, yeah. that, that we were heading back yeah. and I couldn't raise them. I couldn't okay. reach them. And at that point, I was afraid because I thought, great, now we've lost radio communication because the antenna is in some farmer's field in Saskatchewan somewhere. Oh. As it turns out, because of the storm, we just weren't able to, con to, to reach uh, the air traffic control center on the ground. But a Canadian airline, WestJet, did hear us and was able to relay our information of what we wanted. And then probably about three to five minutes later, we were uh, in direct radio contact again. And hearing that, that WestJet's voice was, was uh, boy, it was a big sigh of relief. Wow. To, at least we had some communication with the ground. So, so you're, in a, you're in a lightning storm. What about the lightning? Well, it's kind of funny what you notice and what you remember, because as this started going, I vaguely remember there being flashes. Now, remember, we're, we were in the clouds at this time, so it was as somebody painted the windshield gray. Okay. And there were flashes of light, and it was understandable if we're approaching thunderstorms, there should be some, but it's kind of difficult to tell distances uh, it wasn't it wasn't dark yet. It was kind of starting to approach dusk. But you can't tell if you're in a cloud. You can't tell if a lightning flash is right next to you or if it's 50 or 60 miles away. Coupled with the fact that the radar on the airplane was not showing any thunderstorms in our area. All right. Well, did, were you hit by lightning? When we descended through about 10,000 feet, heading back towards Calgary, the only damage we could see within the aircraft was my windshield that was shattered. Fortunately, only the outer pane was shattered because Boeing built such a rock-solid aircraft that they have double windshield. All right, let's hear it for Boeing. Um, let's hear it for Boeing. Yeah, I am, I'm the biggest Boeing fan on the planet. <laughs> okay. Um, and the only other damage that we could tell in front of the captain's windshield, about uh, two feet out away from his windshield, there was a piece of weather stripping that was coming loose. And then we knew that this is where the... Uh, Aircraft's fuselage is uh, uh, is attached to the uh, radar dome, to the nose cone of the aircraft. So we thought that might have been loose. All of the checklists that we did and all of the uh, diagnosis, if, if you will, that we did told us that the radar dome, that the nose cone of the aircraft was still on intact. Because we do have procedures how to land the aircraft if we suspect that that's up. We went with the assumption that it was still there. We landed the aircraft. It was still daylight at this time. Taxied back. To, uh, to our cargo ramp, uh -huh. and we weren't able to contact the ground handlers there, but they knew that we had turned around and come back because their company had seen it on, on uh, their radar screen. They figured something so, was wrong, probably. Yeah, and they, yeah. it was actually kind of funny because they were upset because they were already on their way home and right. had to get called back to work because here comes the, the cargo aircraft. And thinking, what's wrong with these knuckleheads? Yeah, did yeah. they forget something? What is it? <laughs> were they too afraid to go yeah. flying in bad weather? Uh -huh. You know, the whole host of things. You want to go home, you don't want to get called back to work. Right. It was kind of funny because I was leaning forward, looking at them as much as I could from the front, and they were marshalling, waving the aircraft in. And the look on their on um, <laughs> the guy's face went from just anger to eyes wide open, <laughs> mouth dropped in horror. And we still didn't understand what this was. It's like so your first, your first gauging of what the plane looks like is coming from his astonished expression. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they pull up the. We stopped the park the airplane. They pull up the ladder. 
we run on down and then it hits us because then all of the damage that you've seen on on the uh, aircraft the nose cone being a good three feet of it missing uh the leading edge of every wing wing um of the nacelles around uh, the engines just being looked like somebody took a ball of peen hammer and, and beat them uh, yeah, these uh, are big dents. I mean, these are bigger than your thumb. These are big. Yes. Yeah. Yes. At that point, we finally realized what was uh, how how much damage there truly was. Uh, a few days later, when the mechanics started really going over the aircraft, they found thirteen. At last count, they found thirteen holes in the aircraft with scorch marks around them. They were lightning <laughs> entry exit points. Now, at had, some had point, be, the lightning must have forked because there's an odd number of holes. Okay. Going in and out. So we could have been hit with 12. We could have been hit with six. We don't know. But we got hit by lightning. The biggest lightning hole was about the two of the uh, the mechanics hands put together that big or wide. And the Chunk small, missing. Yes. Underneath okay. the wing. And the smallest was a pinky size hole. Had you been hit by lightning ever before? I personally had not been hit by lightning before. And this is a testament to the most amazing aircraft ever built <laughs> by Boeing. The fact that... N- it's an electrical airplane. Everything on that aircraft is pretty much run by uh, uh, electronics uh, and electrics, if you will. Generators uh, powering different systems. They stayed intact. We never lost any type of electrical function on any of our instruments or any of our gauges or any of our flight controls. And we must have hit, got hit by lightning at least several times through that. Wow. And we were so busy, we did not even notice it. Wow. This is a first-hand report of what happened in August of 06 uh, over over Alberta, Canada. I guess Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah. In the wake of this, the the damage looks so incredible in some of these photos that on the web, a lot of people were, were saying, oh, that must be an internet hoax. How, how do you respond to that? Uh, the first time that I saw something, which was just a few days later when the photos got uh, put on there, the individual who had written up their little remark on, on that was completely and utterly wrong about every detail of what they had put on there. Okay. Um, I responded to, to that one. And then subsequently after that, I realized that uh, I'm, this is a futile effort on my part. <laughs> In fact, the only thing that he got wrong, uh, right on it was the fact that it was a Boeing 727 and that it was over Canada. Every other detail was wrong. I remember reading somewhere, someone said, well, it looks like that just must have happened on the ground. But then if it happened on the ground, why would you punch out the nose cone in the front of the aircraft? Exactly. It would have had to been horizontal hail <laughs> on the ground for that to, to have happened. I also want to give uh, uh, kudos to Pratt & Whitney, who built the yeah. engines how that your... stayed running with thousands of pounds of ice going through them. And, and, and how did that happen? How did those, those fan Pratt blades... Pratt & Whitney makes a damn good engine. That's how. Well, I mean, I just don't get how those hail, those, we don't know how big the hail was either. I mean, We don't. Is we there don't. any way they can guesstimate later? I, I don't know. Okay. I, I have no idea. One, one of the websites, the guy said there was baseball-sized hail. I was a bit too uh, uh, scared out of my mind to notice which sports equipment the hail resembled. <laughs> um, well, nevertheless, how does it go through it, a fan blade and not just rip it up? I, I'm, just, I'm amazed by this. It, it, it got chewed up a little bit. We had the engine heat on before we had even entered the clouds. That, that heats the nacelles of the engine, so if any ice builds up, uh, uh, it melts, and, and it doesn't clog up the engines. The mechanics did tell us that the, the, the forward fan blades were sharpened to a razor-sharp edge. Wow. 
And it must have been that they chewed through that ice and, and vaporized it or liquefied it, and then it just went through the rest of the engine and the, uh, the mechanics that maintain our engines and Pratt and Whitney who built them and Boeing who decided wow. to put those <laughs> engines on the airplane, they worked. They did not even hiccup the whole entire time. Well, I'm certainly no engineer, but I do know that uh, in the old in World War II, they found a way to inject water in the engine to increase the compression ratio so water would take up space inside a piston. So you can run water through an engine yes yes you can and and we we run through uh, rainstorms all the time it's it's more in, uh, uh, so water can can the engines can handle water fairly easily it's just ice that's uh, a little bit uh, harder than water as you can ask the <laughs> folks on the Titanic all right well Vlado final comments and well the final comment is to put the final rumor to rest that was on the internet that the uh, engineer Mikey and I myself the first officer did not quit after uh, we got back on the ground. And the fact that the airplane was not scuttled, uh, was not disassembled. In fact, I was in that same exact airplane less than 30 days later flying a revenue flight, hauling cargo, and earning money for it. Presumably with new fan blades in the Pratt & Whitney. It was with new fan <laughs> blades. People asked me if I was afraid to fly in that particular airplane ever again. My response was, hell no. That's my favorite airplane <laughs> on the planet. That's the one that brought me back, and it's still in use today. Well, it's a hell of a story, and it's all true. And I want to thank you for telling it to us. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Vlado Zaravica is our aviation correspondent here at Radio Parallax, and he'll be back again with more tales of the Wild Blue Yonder sometime soon. Hopefully less harrowing. That is it for the show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to our regular political correspondent, Will Durst, as well as our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika. Both will be back. We hope, too, to uh, have Matthew Brzezinski return to this program to finish talking about the fascinating tale of how Sputnik happened, what was really going on, and uh, what followed. So we do want to we do want to return to that topic. Uh, in the weeks to come, we're going to bring you Heather Klinger, as we promised. Our media correspondent Gary Chu will be back. And while we don't know whether we will succeed, we're going to do our best to try and bring you Seymour Hirsch, who's appearing in Davis uh, on the 17th of this month. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>